I'm Jason Baylor-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. We need to start the first show by acknowledging the title of this podcast comes from the Lawrence Weschler biography of Robert Irwin, Seeing is Forgetting, the name of the thing one sees. The reason I chose this title is because it was a major influence on me when I moved from New York City to Los Angeles. It was the first book I read. And it actually gave a voice to a lot of the concerns I was having in the studio and why I was making the work I was making. And it was the first time anybody had vocalized that in a very clear and concise way that wasn't art speak. This podcast and its intent is to allow the listeners to understand why the people that we have on, artists, writers, gallerists, curators, do the things they do day in and day out to give voice to the artwork that is being shown in galleries, museums, and alternative spaces. I'd also like to thank Fugazi for allowing me to use the music for the introduction of the show. We're going to be using this every day. Our first guest is going to be John Houck. He's a close friend, and I thought it would be interesting to hear, not specifically about the individual works that he's making. I'm not going to go into great detail asking him about the lines and marks and telling you what these pieces look like. That's for you to go and discover outside of this and to figure out why he's making these pieces. We ask him about his family and we ask about friendships and we ask about the studio practice day in and day out. And in parts of this interview, it gets quite personal and between me and him, we share a lot. So I will give you a brief description of what John's works look like. So you have some, context of the conversation that's about to take place. His earlier work called Aggregates, he created a software to generate every possible combination of a given grid system. He then specifies the rows and columns in the grid and selects a series of colors to fill that grid, and it creates a ton of images. Basically, a three-by-three grid of with four colors has over 50,000 possible combinations. He then takes this grid of, of colors, essentially, and folds them and photographs them. And then he takes the printed off photograph with the fold and refolds it with real folds in in between. So you really can't tell what's the fold, what's the photograph of the fold with this given grid system that he's creating for each individual work. He then goes into these new works called History Graph Paper. And probably the best way to explain this is by reading a section of uh, Kathleen Kramer's critics pick for Art Forum for his new show in New York at On Stellar Rays. She goes on to say, The works take root in Houck's History of Graph Paper series from 2013, in which photographic still lifes and personal relics serve as backdrops for some of the same physical objects placed atop printed reproductions and photographed again. Now he's introduced paint into the works with quiet intervention, sometimes quite directly on the surface of his prints, but mostly as re-photographed bits of trompe l'oeil. She goes on to say, The exhibition is titled Plain in Reality, which is a way of saying the works are about the tumultuous process of creation. As the artist writes on the folded sheet of newsprint that accompanies the show, don't ask what it means so much as where does it go. Drawn lines are sometimes representations, but they also lead somewhere. I should mention also, John is part of the permanent collections of Art Institute of Chicago, Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Museum of Modern Art, Guggenheim, and the Whitney. Just about anything you can think of, he's probably uh, part of that collection. So thank you, John. And with further ado... Here's the uh, podcast.
So, you're in my studio. Welcome. Thanks, man. It's not the first time. <laughs> no, it is not the first time. <laughs> the first time with headphones, though. It's the first time with headphones. It sort of weirded you out when you came in, too. Yeah. I couldn't put them on all the way. I'd have one on, one off, like a DJ. Yeah. <laughs> like at a round table. Okay, so I think uh, it would be good to maybe start and reference the fact that we are friends. We've known each yeah. other for a good long while. You're, To be honest, you're you're one of my best friends. So it's... Same, man. Yeah, it's... Anything that we say basically during the interview and stuff comes with a, a little caveat that we've known each other for a long time and I'm not busting your balls on shit. Yeah. No, likewise. And I, uh, that's why I wasn't nervous at all about this. And then like, as I was driving over here, I was like, shit, should I be nervous about this? No, absolutely not. <laughs> no, this is a piece of cake. It's just yeah. like when we're talking over beers or something. Yeah. Um, but I think I wanted to talk a bit as I look at, you've done a lot of interviews mm-hmm. over the last few years. I think, one of the first ones that I pulled out was one that you did with Lucas back in 2011, maybe? It was right when the aggregates came out. And, yeah. we, and I don't want to, I'm not necessarily going to go over all of the different works that you've put out. We'll reference them. But at, at this point, I think that we can give brief descriptions of some of the pieces, like the aggregates or the history graph paper, some of these ones that uh, you've transitioned into and some of the new bodies of work as well too. But like, I don't want to stick on that. I'm more interested in um, some of the things that these interviews didn't hit on, Mm. which is maybe some of your background that I I didn't hear coming up and some of it's personal, but also I think it's, it's relative to why you produce the work you produce. Mm -hmm. And for me, there were like gaps in some of the, the interviews, not in the sense that there was tons of information. And I'm, I am going to bust your balls on this one. And you, you had, um, you have this amazing show that just went up in New York. What's the title of it? Playing in reality at on stellar rays. Yeah. And you opened up the new ground floor space right, right around the corner from news. Exactly. And I, uh, it was the, my second solo show in New York was also with on stellar rays, uh, two and a half years ago. And that was, uh, the inaugural show of her, new space at the time which was upstairs uh which she still has that she still has exactly and now she has uh she being candace candace exactly uh has moved to the the first floor uh and now has two floors and expanded the gallery and it's uh it was a you know another tremendous honor to to inaugurate yet another space with the gallery and uh she runs a wonderful program yeah it's never been shy to to put out work that's sort of challenged what people were doing down on Lower East Side or even New York in general, Mm -hmm. Lower East Side. And I think your work fit sort of the context of what she was putting out there. And it's been, it progressively changes as each show comes up in these ways that they all work together and they have the same language coming through, but it's a nice, it's a nice adjustment. You hear the Mm -hmm. cop car in the background here? Yeah, it feels like New York. It's Echo Park. Um, one of the things I did notice and what I was going to bring up too is that when you talk about the work you have a very rational way of laying out everything and knowing you and how you sort of put things together you're very analytical Mm -hmm. about process and and how you sort of approach the work but in like the Brooklyn Rail piece this is something I noticed Um, you are very well read you read a lot Mm -hmm. and I think it's one of those things that you could miss. I mean, 
you don't naturally bring these things up in everyday conversation. If I'm talking to you, you're not going to like reference these things when I'm in the studio and that, but yeah. like, in the Brooklyn rail piece, you mentioned eight separate authors and books within a, a page and a half of, of this printout of this mm-hmm. interview. And it strikes me that you, your relationship to these writings and how you sort of produce the work is very integral into the, the process. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, I mean, that's, it's a, that's a very broad question. No, I, 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 I know where you're going with it though. I, I would say prior, prior to being in psychoanalysis, uh, I, I did read a lot to, to the point where I didn't actually really make work. Like I would go surfing, uh, with my wife, Leah. And, and by that, I mean, she would go surfing and I would sit on the beach and read Deleuze and, uh, the Frankfurt School philosophers, and I wouldn't even get in the water. I would basically watch her surf and read. And Did I you was, bring a board? And I would often bring a board. I'd have a wetsuit. I'd be ready. Right. And then I just would sit on the beach and read. I was obsessed with it, and I would be constantly quoting these things to the point where uh, people around me, my wife included, were annoyed with how much I was kind of leaning on other people's thoughts. And, and it wasn't really until analysis that I was uh, able to let go of that a little bit uh, because I am, as you point out, I, I am quite analytical. I worked in software for five years. I, I, it suits me in a way. I find a great comfort in having the right answer to things uh, and having a quote to back up a feeling. I think I used that when I first, specifically too, when I came to LA because it was built out of, I think it's different for me than it was for you. I, I did it built out of insecurity. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't comfortable in sort of the work I was making or why I was making this work. So what I did is I, I looked at Buchlo or I'd look at like, I'd really search for the reasons why I was making the work. And part of the problem was I didn't understand why I was making the work. Mm-hmm. So through this text, I was searching for sort of reason and understanding. And, and really it only came when I sort of let that stuff go a little bit and still processed it, but not in the way that I was sort of spouting that information as, as a, a reason. Yeah. It, it's just not my work. But for you, I, it hits in a different level. Like you were, it's part of your process. It is. I mean, reading, you know, is, is a really important part of my process. And this show in New York, I, I wrote a text that goes along with, with the show. And I, I took a lot of time and care to, to write something that was meaningful to me and the show and didn't illustrate the ideas of the show, but that actually provided yet another kind of more expansive reading of the show. And it's been the most amazing feeling that uh, the show being reviewed, a lot of people have been quoting my writing in the reviews, which is like a new, a new thing for me, but something that, as you point out in the Brooklyn rail, I like to work through ideas, uh, my own and other people's included. Uh, and I do have a kind of, um, well, you have like this appendix of sort of like photo history knowledge and not just photo history, but like, I, I think I was sort of struck by the fact that as we hung out and we got to know each other better over this period of time, uh, specifically in LA and everything too, you would have reference points for me and my work as, as a sculptor, but also in painting and everything too, that's outside of like what the traditional medium is that you sort of found is an immediate uh, source or an outlet. Mm-hmm. And I, I was always sort of impressed that you, the, 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 the width or the, sort of the, like how broad of a, of a scope you were looking at. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I like, have this is really anal and almost hard to admit but i have i have like 
every book I've ever read, I take notes out of, and I have uh, probably now like 50 pages of, a journal? of notes typed up of quotes from books. And I periodically read that. And I sometimes then take notes from those notes onto index cards. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's insane. But it's like, you know, if I have a big, a big panel discussion coming up or something, I kind of read through those and it gives me a kind of grounding, a kind of... Oh, so that totally makes sense. So when you're getting yeah. ready for, you know, the Brooklyn Rail thing's coming up. So when you get ready for the Brooklyn Rail, you go back and you sort of look at those things that have sort of affected you when you're putting this together. I do. And I... You know, I think at one time in my life it was very obsessive and I over-prepared. And now I, I don't, I'm painting this picture like I'm really prepared, but I don't, I don't prepare so much. You didn't prepare for this at all. And I didn't prepare for this at all. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I do think, and to go, to go back to analysis, I think uh, that's one thing I really learned, a very strong thing I learned early on was that the way that I intellectualize things is often a means to distance myself from emotion. It's a way to put a kind of rationality between me and the world so that I don't have to feel difficult things. And I think, uh, you know, when I showed up to the first day of analysis, I came with a pencil and paper as if I was going to take notes about the process of being in analysis, which is totally absurd. It's, it's crazy. I almost got laughed out of the room because I was trying to make uh, this very kind of emotional thing where you're just... You wanted to fit it into a box that you'd already sort of preconceived what that box was going to be. I wanted to intellectualize it yeah. myself. And, and the process of talking to another person and remembering things uh, with feeling. I, I couldn't do that because I wanted to intellectualize it. Well, I see this too. When we, we do, so we do tons of studio visits back and forth in the process of making. In, and often the things that you and I show each other are not even close to being finished. Mm -hmm. But I see that I see that sort of nudge to try to do that sometimes in the work when we go into the studio and we start talking about, the process or like why you're actually making the work you're making and specifically too, I'm, I wanted to bring up painting in a little mm -hmm. bit, but like, it's interesting to me that that is something that you sort of fight against a little bit too. And you can see it in the new work mm -hmm. that involves painting over the photographs. And it's this looseness that sort of comes out. Yeah. Well, no, I, uh, and that's one thing that I, that, that was so invigorating when I first met you in LA and, and hanging out with you is I remember we, it was maybe the, the third or fourth time, but we went to Mohawk Bend. We had some beers, and I walked back home up the hill in Silver Lake. And, you know, I just felt totally charged up because you are so spontaneous. And I don't, I don't <laughs> you know, like I, I don't have to, like, lean on all of this bookish knowledge. We can just have fun and talk about things and get into really deep emotions and feelings and not and not have to over-intellectualize everything. And it, it made me feel... Uh, you know, like after a, being at a, a concert or something, like just kind of charged up. And I ran up the hill and I remember like, I was also a bit intoxicated, but I... That's hard to imagine. Yeah. I threw, <laughs> like I, there was like a skunk in a front in somebody's front yard and I picked up like a two by four at a construction site and <laughs> threw it at the skunk and was just like, I don't know, like... You've never told me this. It's no, hilarious. no, I... Uh, That's really sweet. Yeah, but but you know what I mean? Like you, you... Uh, you aren't so censored sometimes and that's really helpful for me and right. i and yeah. i found it really um sometimes not for the best but like but yeah and that's not always i'm not saying that's like always a good thing but <laughs> but it's uh, <laughs> you you have found a way to uh, bear with it it's nice no it's good well no and i i think i think like in the studio in particular like you're bringing up uh particularly around 
my more recent work where there is more kind of playfulness in it and I'm not over determining what I'm making before I'm making it. I'm just trying to go in the studio and see what emerges. You've been a really, really helpful in, in, in looking at that work and and well it's nice to be able to go into a studio and i think other artists can share this too when they find somebody that they can trust and we and i limit the people that actually come into my studio now i I, when i first moved here i think i i took a broad approach and started having everybody over and it's not healthy necessarily because everybody's sort of going to um they're going to impose their own issues on top of what they're what they're actually doing in 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 your studio and and that's just natural but like Mm -hmm. to have somebody you can having coming in sort of trust with like the information that you're actually putting out is, is a rarity. Yeah. And it's nice. There's no, there's little judgment. It's also nice too. I know that when I come into the studio, so you, you've been working on painting for the last, this is what's really interesting me. Interesting to me about the show that's on right now Mm -hmm. is you have been working on painting in your work for the last year and a half or something like uh, like a considerable amount of time but yeah i would say more than just about anybody else i know you're in the studio constantly yeah it like every day i'm and always there you're always there but you're there late into the evening often mm-hmm. and the volume of work that i see you do to reach a place where you're happy with the the um the the product that you're putting out the 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 art that you're actually putting out there is really impressive. Like I've seen, but there, there's a testament to like why the show actually works in New York because you've worked through this entire process of you were actually doing full paintings before you reached a point where you realized that these little gestural moments within the paintings were what really needed to be seen. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and that for me, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the newsprint pieces? I think those were, that was the start of something that was pretty amazing. Well, it also, as you were talking, it occurred to me that I, I always show you the last thing I was working on first when you come to the studio. It's the exact opposite of everybody else I have in the studio. I show them like the, you know, the oldest thing I was working on first. Like I take them to the aggregates and it's this chronological sort of stepping through. Whereas when you come into the studio, I'm showing you things that where the paint is still drying. Do you know what I mean? Like it's really fresh. I haven't shown it to anybody. And so you, unlike most visitors, uh, you see kind of, all the stuff I make, which maybe gives the impression that I am even more busy than I am sometimes. But you make, you make but it, I, I've always seen new stuff. So but I am in there a lot. Yeah. You're, you're no, in there. No question. But yeah. the, the, I don't think people really get a sense of how much work doesn't see the light of day. Yeah. It's a, it is a good, good there, amount. Oh my God. There's so many. There are 95% or more is yeah. not ever shown and because mm-hmm. it's not finished work. Yeah. And not, we're not even talking about you're working on, 50 paintings and two of them make it out. You're working on multiple mediums. Mm-hmm. You're working on sculpture. You're working on painting. You're working yeah. on woodcuts. You're working on, you have, you have multiple machines running in the studio at one given time to try to figure out if that's going to be the thing that gets you to the next place in, in the thought process. Right. Right. No, it is. It's, there is a real like, um, fiddling around the studio, trying out lots of things. Like today we had like, a vinyl cutter and an inkjet printer going simultaneously and trying out this new way of like trying to mask off these paintings. And it, it just, you know, it, it often goes nowhere, but, but that process is so fascinating to well, me. And I, every I, once in a while you hit like a gem. Exactly. And it, it, 
it just and you know it like the three times that's happened in the studio <laughs> i know those three times and exactly when that happened what piece it was and when you get that feeling that suddenly you've turned a corner and a whole new world opens up it's it makes that entire seemingly fruitless search worth it well what's interesting to 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 me about that too is like when you hit that that moment and you're like yes that's like that's it and for me i think was it the bicycle tire piece yeah. in the new show that was like the first one that came out mm-hmm. you painted this wonky hand on top of it that just didn't belong there yeah and it fits so perfect that all the rest of the pieces just sort of flowed mm-hmm. like it didn't take you that time to sort of produce those the next volume of works you sort of like jumped into it in a way that was like very not quick but it, it seemed uh it seemed to flow out of you yeah and it's true it's like uh that show came together like it was exponentially quicker once I got the first photo than the second and then the third picture. And by the, the 10th one, it was just, you know, they were coming out much, much quicker and you get, and you get in a kind of rhythm uh, as they build one on top of the other. And that's, and that's super exciting. But to go back to your question about, about uh, painting or how that kind of came about, you know, I think when I was in grad school and, and prior to that, I'd, I've always drawn quite a bit. And being in, in architecture and undergrad, we would do a whole lot of whole lot of drawing. Uh, and when I was in grad school, I I did a tutorial with with Larry Pittman and really got into painting. And he's like, "Well, if you're so into painting, why don't you apply to Skowhegan?" And I was like, "I don't even know what Skowhegan is, but I'll do that if that's what it's going to take to learn how to paint." And so I applied not knowing that Skowhegan is insanely difficult to get into or not knowing a thing about this residency. And somehow I got in on the first try and the summer after I graduated from grad school, I went to Skowhegan and because Larry Larry Pittman told me it was a good place to go painting and I was interested in painting, I went there and I painted the entire summer. That's amazing. And just made terrible paintings. (laughs) (laughs) And, but it was so amazing because at that residency, there were some incredible painters there and they were so generous and they would show me the basics of how to set up your canvas, why acrylic is terrible, why you should use oil according to some and uh, just walking me through the, the basic stuff of how to how to make a painting and, and then seeing their work, of course, too, was hugely influential on me. And uh, so so that really that really started something in me. But but I also it was it was quite frustrating as well, because I just wasn't that good at it. Not and I getting was, results. I wasn't getting results, you know, and I, I expected somehow like, oh, in one summer I'll figure out this painting thing and then I'll be a painter. But that, that's far You know what, that doesn't, case. it doesn't work that way now. Like we, the listeners don't know. I was a, I was a painter before I went to grad school. I was a portrait painter. Mm-hmm. And then I went to grad school and I switched over to sculpture. But like, you know, you're in the studio all the time. And if you're painting, I mean, it's the same with sculpture too. Yeah. It, it doesn't always flow. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work, and you have to be—you have to generate so much, and and put so much effort in that to actually make it work day in and day out. That it's not. And I think in the beginning of like when you're learning something like that painting, it's not apparent that that's how it works. It's not. You're right. And I, you know, I I grew up bike racing, and 
doing really intense uh, sports, and so I thought Wait, you didn't just grow up bike racing. You were yeah, I I was serious. <laughs> you were on the na- national team, or what were you, what were yeah, you? I was on the Mountain States team, which is like the precursor to the national team, and uh, you know, like they they divide up the country into four areas, and the Mountain States team is like the most difficult one because it involves Colorado and Utah and all the states where they're actually cyclists, uh, and I was on that, and I. You know, I won this this race in Boulder, Colorado, called the Red Zinger Mini Classic. That was kind of the height of my career. That the huge race, uh, kind of Tour de France for how long was junior it? Junior racers. I, I think it's six days. Oh my uh, god! Yeah, six days of riding. There's people from you know various countries, uh, national teams from other countries are riding there, and uh, and you won that. I won that the second year I rode in it. It was huge. how old were you? That was uh, I was sixteen when I won that and that was a really big deal but you know training like that I always thought well I can just can set goals I can keep training and I'll get to where I want to get in a sense because I did in cycling uh for a time uh that's a longer story but uh so I think I I approached painting like that but with a creative endeavor, that doesn't work. You can't just set goals and say, I'm going to make a great painting in six months. You just have to show up, like you're saying, and keep making it and hope that somehow it emerges. It's a kind of, there's a kind of playfulness and a way in which you can't really will great work to emerge. It, it kind of has to happen. You can set up the conditions for it, but you have to just be in the studio, I think, grinding it out and hoping all the time, all the time and hoping that eventually it's going to work. Yeah, there's no serendipity. I mean, it just doesn't happen. It does, it or it does, but it's it's a rare. It's through work. It's a rare occurrence that it sort of happens. Is that a siren? Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> talking about, um, I want to finish the thought on painting a little bit too. Oh yeah, I uh, a lot of, I left that halfway through. Well, yeah, but also I think one of the things that. Um, is interesting to me about the painting is your your father was a painter. Yeah. And you were, I remember going back into this, you were riffing on your father's paintings because they're pretty awesome. Yeah. No, and that's that's a great point. I And that connects very well to the Skowhegan story because when I was at Skowhegan and got really interested in painting and was painting, my dad started painting. I mean, and this it interleaves quite well with, with cycling too. Like my dad was a cyclist. My brother was a cyclist. Like as a family... We did everything together. We did all the same things. So when I started painting, my dad was like, I imagine he was like, well, I need to start painting as well because John is and it'll keep us close. So he started painting and he kind of made some remarkable paintings. They're good. They're really good. And They're really good. And I, you know, I was, of course, flattered in a way that he was doing that, but it also felt like competition. It felt like a kind of Oedipal struggle. It's stressful. It's really stressful. And the fact that they were so good, I, a few years ago, tried to grapple with them by trying to repaint them and reclaim them as my own and spent... They were no good. It was really difficult. Yeah, they they just didn't work. No, it didn't. It really didn't. I tried everything. I tried like making silk screens out of them and then painting on top of them. But, you know, and, and now that I mentioned that, it's not unlike the work that I'm doing now in no, that, no, in no, that no. I'm, like, layering these gestures on top of the photos. And so that, that work kind of set a template for something. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was a long process to get to these. And, and part of that was, was grappling with my dad's painting practice. Well, I think you, 
you have to fight with this thing of like, you're not going to do work that looks like that. Or, or you are. In that case, you were trying to re-edit them into something that actually fit what you were doing. Yeah. And it wasn't a bad idea. Mm-hmm. But it didn't allow you, in the same way that you set up these structures and sort of uh, this, this framework for producing the aggregates or any of the other work that you're actually doing, you set up these rules and sort of formations of how the work was actually going to be produced. And the painting wasn't about any of the freedom of like expression or like these movements. It was about this rigidity of like recreating a photo from your father, yeah, which was this connection. And you see that actually there's something interesting in the history of graph paper pieces and how you're taking these objects from your parents too. There's this, this cyclical thing that happens with the family and the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there certainly is. And I, uh, they were they were tough to to kind of face. Like some of the paintings are paintings of me, of my brother, of my mom. Uh, they're very personal, and it's really different than painting from a photographic source. To paint from a painting that is your father's painting, it turned out to be impossible for me, at least. Uh, and you know what what happened recently? Like six months ago, I kind of. Now that I haven't been making those paintings, I kind of made made peace with them psychically somehow, and I asked him to send me one of his paintings. Really? It was a beautiful moment, and he, you know, they, they recently moved to Portland, and a lot of his paintings are in storage, and he hasn't been painting much, but I, there was one in particular that I had in my mind, and I asked him for it, and he uh, he packaged it up and FedExed it to me, and now I have that in my house, and that's been... You haven't shown me that yet. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so... that that. Do you have it up? I do. Where? In the uh, in the living room, yeah, and it really, I don't know. It, it seemed to what's like it, which one was it? Which what, that what's it of? Can you describe it? Yeah, yeah. My it's it's of I think it's of Estes Park, and it's uh, my grandfather worked for Hewlett Packard, and uh, Hewlett Packard had a corporate retreat in Estes Park where my my parents uh, grew up in Colorado, and. Uh, I, my grandfather was in charge of keeping track of all the cabins and maintaining them and just basically like the groundskeeper for this huge corporate retreat. And so it's these cabins in Estes Park that my grandfather kept up. Uh, and my dad painted them, but like it's this weird painting where it's like both they're both on fire and being snowed on. Like, and the cabins kind of repeat over and over. It has this like kind of patterny quality and this in this environment where you don't know if they're kind of like burning up or being snowed on or what the kind of atmosphere is, is quite, it's quite confusing in a way. It, you don't know if it's like really um, a, a terror kind of scene or if it's really like a beautiful kind of pastoral scene. There's something really uns- sort of, unsettling about it. Sort of grapples with a lot of issues that like, not you personally, but just as kids growing up with families and everything. Like yeah. your parents and how you sort of deal with those issues, like coming out of that stuff too. That's really heavy yeah. emotional content. It is. He's really, he's amazing about that stuff. He really, he's quite ex- expressive, you know, and uh, it, it really comes in uh, across in his paintings. I, I yeah, I, I wish he could keep, keep doing them. We, since we're on the topic of the family too, I think one of the, one of the reasons we, connected to begin with too we both grew up in rural rural areas i'm i'm from iowa you're from colorado but we also grew up fairly poor yeah um like i had a 
chemical toilet and we lived in a basement seven miles out of town and we had to haul our water in. We didn't have a well, mm-hmm. you know, and you were, you had a trailer. Yeah. Yeah. We had a double wide trailer in central city, Colorado. I think it yeah. imparts this uh, very real re- reality on you where you just don't stop. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That momentum. Yeah. It, it either goes one of two ways. Like you stay sort of in a stall or you choose to get out of it and mm-hmm. you, you push forward, but it just, uh, we've talked about this before, but like, I remember I was never necessarily a kid that, um, won awards for making art or anything like that. Like mm-hmm. in elementary school, I remember the kids who were though, this guy, Jason Anderson and this other guy, Daniel, and they moved out. Like I was still the one making when they left. And that's the only reason I kept making work. Yeah. I just never stopped. But I see that in you a lot too, where mm-hmm. you just, especially working in the studio stuff too, you push forward in a way that like, I don't think you can discount that enough. And like why there's success you're seeing success in, in like the work that you're producing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, that kind of, like I would say like, like with you, I, that, that idea of not stopping is really interesting as well. Like you, you're quite, um, well, I guess it's more of a question. Like how, how do you see that manifesting in your, in your life? The kind of, um, not, not stopping quality. I think it, for me, right? You mean right now? No, I, I just I guess, in general. I mean, the way I'm thinking about it in this moment is like, well, when I when I graduated college, for example, like I couldn't stop in a sense and have like a lot of my friends in their 20s were like, I'm gonna go be in a band and just dick around. Yeah, and I didn't do that. I got a job in software because I like to program, but I also knew that I could make money at that, and I had to do that in order to stay above water financially. Right. And I just, there was no, there was no question. And it, I had this tremendous drive to do that. You know, I had a, I had a job like two days after college because I could, I couldn't stop. And, and I think that's how that manifested for me at that time. Uh, well, I see that with the rest of your work as well too. Like yeah. you, well, and how you transition through things too. You were in architecture school. Yeah. You got a really good internship. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you moved directly out of probably going to grad school for architecture and then went into software. Yeah. You did really well at software. Mm-hmm. Quit software. It's like you were finding this sort of momentum going through things, just figure out what you wanted to do, became the best at what you, it's like the, the bicycling too. Yeah. Figure out, be the best you can do with that thing at the moment, figure, or at least to a pinnacle point where it's either you're going to go completely that direction or diverge and go some other, other place. And then, you have always chosen to figure out what's going to actually challenge you the most. And I think you ended up at art because there's no clear, it's the most challenging thing. Yeah. And and there's no clear cut. You have to push forward. And I, I see it with um, the shows that you're producing, mm-hmm. pushing forward to the next thing. You're always challenged. I guess for me, it's much the same way. I think in the same way of like finding a job. Yeah like immediately after school, having to like hold down multiple jobs, do 20 things at once. Uh, I was going to say that like right now as well, you're, you're running this podcast, you're in the studio constantly, you have a full-time job, you have two children. It's, it's, uh, it's nonstop. You can't stop either. I mean, and and I think that's what I, with my question, that's where I was kind of, that's what I had in mind is, is that, that quality. And, uh, I, I do think there is, there is some relation to that, 
uh, being raised with without a lot of means. Well, this this brings us into uh, another thing that we talked about briefly too. Is like I'm in a different part of my career than you're in your career right now. You uh, you have a lot of institutional support, lots of really good reviews and everything. I I just had my show in New York. Very happy with how everything came out too. But the the uh, the sort of fruits of that that labor aren't necessarily like I remember talking to you and this is, we talked about this before you came on too, but like, I remember you got, you just got a review. You got an art forums critic pick. Yeah. And I want to bring this up too, because it's interesting to have like really good friends who are like you, myself and uh, Lucas Blaylock, who is also a very good friend, all have solo shows in New York at the exact same time. Yeah. And so uh, it's really exciting, but then you get an art forums critic pick. My show is coming down in like a week. And you get like a New Yorker review. My show just yeah. came down, and you're like, "Shit, dude! Like, son of a bitch! Like that dude! Like he's golden. He can't like lose." But then for a moment, I'm like, "Should I text him and like congratulate him?" I'm not gonna do that. And I'm like, "Oh shit! Yeah, I gotta text him like right yeah. now." That was like a five second thought, by the way. But you, no, I I understand, man. I I think I think right away about about my brother and growing up he's you know two years younger than me and we we did all the same things like we bike raced and we were in all the same races and that's really hard to be close to somebody when you're doing all the same shit and going after all the same things all the same things we had a we had a really complicates things we had a moment yesterday it's totally funny and by the way the only reason i'm comfortable with this yeah is because i'm okay with i think it's la Mm -hmm. moving to la made me it humbled me in this way that like you have to be, and I, I'm completely fine making the work I'm making for a very long time. It's all a long-term game, and I, I love it. Yeah. There's nothing not to love about it. But we were talking yesterday about a gallery, and you're like, is that gallery uh, pretty good? They wrote me, and we're, like, talking about the work. And I was like, yeah, I just wrote them to try to, like, show mm. a video over there. And I'm like, son of a bitch, not again. <laughs> I like, was, like, was like, if you talk to him, please tell him to show the video. Thanks so much. I know, man. It, it gets... It gets very complicated. I I think it's uh, well. You can't you can't you can't be upset at it though. I know. And well, and I you know, I've never I've never felt that from you that you were. Oh no 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 no! That Absolutely you were, not. That you were jealous, and you're always like so supportive. It's it's amazing, and I you know I really appreciate that. Well, of course, dude. It's like it's you, really genuine, and I uh, it's an incredible feeling because I I know that it is it is really difficult to. Regardless of success or not, it's just hard to be doing the same thing as your friends in the same field. It's like, tough to be in the same world. Because I, I feel like with like my brother, like once we grew up a little bit and we weren't doing the same thing and we were able to differentiate. Your relationship get better? It's so good. Yeah. Amazing. He's a good I, guy. He's great. And I finally felt like I really knew him because he was himself, you know? And I think that's, that's sometimes really the, the thing about being an artist and having artist friends is that you... It, it can really work sometimes when you go out, like when we go out and we don't even really talk about art whatsoever. No, not at all. And that's unless we hate it and we talk about yeah. how shitty it is. Yeah. There's always that yeah, critical that's just, side of that's personal though, too. Yeah. That's not, that's not for public consumption. No, no. But, but you know, I, I think there, there are all these other dimensions that, that hold a friendship together. Yeah. And it's tough too. Like we just having groups of friends that are in the same world. I mean, everybody knows this who's listening to this anyway. But I, I just think it's important to sort of state that stuff. It's like it's natural 
to have all of those emotions come up and actually deal with those things in a way that like is healthy for relationships. Yeah. And, but at the same time, part of the complication I think is that it, it is really, it can give you a lot of, uh, drive in your life. Yes. No, absolutely. It makes me hungry. It does. And you see your friends doing well or they make some great piece and, uh, you're suddenly like, I need to go into the studio right now and start sorting shit out. And, and that's, I mean, to be around like-minded individuals who are really pushing you, that's, that's invaluable. It's invaluable. It's one of the greatest gifts of being alive. Yeah. Well, being an artist. Yeah. That as well. Yeah. (laughs) Just the only way to be alive. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about also uh, New York versus LA. You lived in New York for a while. You went to the Whitney program. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we moved out here roughly the same time back. You were here a while before, right? No, I think you were here first. And I, but were you already, had you already moved to LA and then moved to New York or? Yeah, no. Uh, well, you mean before grad school or? Before Whitney. Yeah. Before Whitney, I had moved here in 2004. Yeah. So you were here UCLA. first. You were here first. Moved to New York. Exactly. And then I moved to New York in 2009 for the Whitney program and stayed there till... 12? Yeah, end of 2012. Yeah, and I was out here in 11. Yeah. Yeah. But um, instead of talking about our chronological history of where we lived, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, we have both uh, talked about New York and LA and what it's like to make work in both places. For me... Uh, I didn't realize how sort of stifling New York was for me personally. And I don't think, I know it's not for everybody because there's a lot of really great artists there making work. For me, it took coming to LA and realizing that the things that I was actually putting together weren't sort of finished, like emotionally more than sort of like physically. Mm -hmm. Uh, You want to talk a bit about that for yourself? Yeah, I'm just thinking right now, I don't, like I moved back because my wife Leah was here and stayed in L.A. while I was in New York. And I really, when I moved to New York for the Whitney program, I thought I would be there for nine months and come right back to Los Angeles. You stayed for a while. And I stayed there for almost three years. It's a long time. And it got to the point where it was, I don't know if our relationship could handle it. Yeah, it's unhealthy. It's really difficult to be in a long-distance marriage for three years, uh, even, even in two cities that are relatively connected, despite being geographically quite far apart, like... You know, we would see each other every month and a half or so, but but it got to the point where it was really difficult. And well, I wanted to, she had a much better job than I did. So I, I decided to move back and I I didn't really want to. I think I wanted to stay in New York. I had just started to, I had got my first solo show at Kansas Gallery. Like things were finally starting to happen yeah. for me. And I was like, I'm throwing it all away to move back to LA potentially. So you're a little bit resentful. I was really worried and and a bit concerned that this would not be a good move for me and that these three years I spent in New York would have just been a wash. But then the exact opposite thing happened, oddly. Moving here somehow catapulted my career. And I, and I don't know. What do you think that came from? I don't know. I, I think the right people bought the work. Th- there was definitely, I had some good support early on with some, some really great collectors who've been very supportive the entire time. And that's yeah. No, nobody sold the work. Nobody sold the work. That's also a, a key component. Uh, I I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to. Would you, would you say some of that has to do with L.A. and like what you, your studio process and like making work out here? 
I think my work did get a lot better when I moved here. I had a lot more room. Of course, that's a cliche thing this to say. This is a very but, leading question. But like, no, I, I do. I, I, uh, I could focus a lot more here. I wasn't going to openings every single night. I wasn't drinking all the time I out think the, the other city. Thing, like I, I could really be in my studio. Well, and, and your family relationship got better too. It did, yeah. Because it, like it's either, it's either going to work or it's not going to work at that point. Mm-hmm. And Lee is amazing. Yeah. No, it's, it, was, it was really helpful to be back and to be with her and to kind of reaffirm that. Well, the support, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, and I do think being in Los Angeles, there's a lot of excitement about this place uh, in terms of the artists that live here and their studios. And it, you- ma- it made me kind of rare in a way. So I had all of these friends and connections in New York. And anytime I would go back, you were the LA artist. I was the LA artist suddenly. And I was in town for a week and a half. And if they wanted to have a meeting with me or do a studio, visit, they had to make themselves available. They had to do it. I wasn't just around the corner. I wasn't always around. Well, and, and you had the pedigree of Skowhegan and the Whitney program. too. Yeah. Yeah. No, those two things were essential to me being in New York. Well, certainly. I think the the connections with the other artists are almost is they're they're more important than any of the the CV or resume stuff that you're getting out of that. You're absolutely right. I mean, everybody at Skowhegan, there were like forty some people from from Brooklyn, and you know, moving there two years later after being in that program, I automatically had this entire peer group in a new city. It, it made it so easy, and and I was in the Whitney, so I had again that that peer group of that group being in school a and a different, a different group of individuals too, like the totally yeah. different subsect of, mm-hmm. of it, I, it is a particular, it's very part particular. of the art world. Yeah. In grad school, I did not understand how important the peer group was going to be and that the support that you receive out of the other artists is more important than the support you receive from some random gallery that isn't going to be here in five years anyway. Yeah. Um, it took me a long time to sort of realize that, um, because the only people who stick around long-term are the friends mm-hmm. or, or the other artists who are actually, well, and you know, out of my class, I mean, there's probably like five people still making work. Yeah. And I, I went to SVA, mm-hmm. but, um, no, it really, yeah. Like Skowhegan, they, they tell you, I think on the first week, it's like, something like 30% of you will be artists in five years. I don't know if they say it quite so formally, but well, and that's a high percent too. And that's a, that's like a really high high. percentage. And we're like, when I was in architecture school, the first day of orientation, they're like three of you in this class of 80 people will be architects someday. Like that field. (laughs) Were you like, not me? I was like, yeah, no, (laughs) I won't be one of those three. See ya. (laughs) (laughs) No chance. (laughs) That's hilarious. Oh, that's too good. But but you know I I think it it is it does require a tremendous amount of faith to be to be a creative person you know because you you work so hard at this thing you have to kind of produce the meaning around the thing that you're making at first before you have reviews or people coming well, in and to, validating it you have to have a studio like not a spiel, but like you have to have figured out why the work, why it's going to be relevant to the people that are coming to the studio. Exactly. And that's a highly personal 
it takes forever. Specific thing that can take a long time to develop. It takes a really long time because yeah. a lot of the time I don't know what I'm making for a year down until after it's made and a year down the road. I'm like, oh, shit. Now it all makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it totally makes sense mm-hmm. now. But like you have to you have to have concrete reasons to produce the work. That, and it totally makes sense. Yeah. It, it, it comes together in the end. Mm-hmm. It does. It does. It, but it is it is such a kind of interesting endeavor in that regard uh let's let's talk about um stuff you have coming up yeah you have uh your first museum show yeah in texas where at yeah at the dallas contemporary that'll be in september of 2017 and you're getting ready for it now or what are you doing i am i just you know this show in new york it's been up for a month and i've been back in the studio and trying to start moving in that direction toward Texas, toward that, that show. And we're going to do a site visit, my gallerist and I, uh, later this summer, and I'll get to see the space. I have the floor plans, but... How big is it? It's huge, right? It's big. It's like 3,000 square feet. And, uh, yeah. Big walls. Big. Are you going to make big stuff? Eh, this is... I keep going back and forth on this in my mind. I, I, I won't really know, I suppose, until I make it, but I do... I would like to make larger, larger works. And why? I, I, it's a good question. I, You're just thinking about it. I just feel like the work I make is always kind of like a lot of them. Well, the largest thing I usually make is 40 by 60 inches. That's the largest aggregate I make. Uh, and uh, We're drinking whiskey, by the way. <laughs> I just said no and then said yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's classic you. Yeah. <laughs> Overthinking it. Uh, well, okay, so... The largest aggregate that you've Yeah, so with. I haven't made that large of works, and I feel like they all... All my works have a kind of... But I don't feel aggregate. Intimacy. Aggregates in are not going in this space. No, they would It would be the new works, like the works in the Ancillary show right now. It would be an extension of that show in some ways. Do they have a... What are these? The others were history graph paper. What are these? You know, it's funny. I haven't given this body of work a name. And, I didn't think so. And quite deliberately, I feel like this is now my work. So you don't need a name for like why you're making this specific series? I don't. Because I feel like this series, for the first time, is open enough. I think that's a good choice. Yeah. Because I feel like the aggregates were like very tightly specified. They were, really, they were. Yeah. There was like this, there's this grid. They're always folded two or three times. They're re-photographed in a particular way. They have a kind of... The parameters on that project are quite tight. And uh, then the histograph paper expanded that a little bit. And now... Loosens it up. It does. And this this body of work, it's like quite quite open. Like, I'm so excited about that. You do whatever they want. That I don't want to put a name around it as a particular body of work. I feel like each show will manifest in a particular way. And I'll give that a name and a kind of now, framing. That we're on this thought process. We'll get back to Texas. But yeah, talking about moving from series to series. And we've talked about this when you're producing a new show for a gallery and the, the pull is to create something new for a new show, give them something that they haven't seen before. Because if you put out the same thing, it's going to read as stale. If you put out something that doesn't fit within what you put out before in the previous show, it's going to read as a complete like jump off and they may like not run with it at all. So how do you connect the new work to this older body and still stay faithful to sort of where you want to be in your own studio practice and not sort of commit things or, or not commit to, to things that you really want to be doing. Well, I think that's where the, the studio visits are so helpful. 
you know, like as I'm making things, I'll kind of go out on a limb sometimes and, and people just, you just see them react and they're like, it's not even legible as your body of work. And, and you know, when... So you can see what they like, what they don't like. So you can see if you're supposed to go in a certain direction or not. I can see if it's legible as my work. And that's really important. For those of you who are listening who don't know, John does an absurd amount of studio visits. Because there's, it's not because you invite people in. It's because they want to come in and be invited into your studio and see the, see the studio. So, and I, and I do, I, you're very generous. I've never, I never thought originally, you know, the fantasy was I'll be alone in the studio making my work. And that's, that's what an artist does. But I, I have, you know, oftentimes five visits a week and it's a very social kind of studio space. And I, is that problematic though? I think it's amazing. You don't have any issue with it. I would feel like for me, that many people in my space all the time, I'd be like, you got to get the fuck out. Yeah. Every once in a while. Every once in a while. I try to keep Monday and Friday completely clear. So you do keep certain days I, like open. Yeah. And that's, I don't have an assistant on the, those days. It's just me alone in the studio. And that's typically when I paint. Uh, and then the other days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are intense. I have uh, my assistant there. We're working on projects. I, ha- I try to schedule visits on those days. We should name check your assistant, by the way. Name check? Jakob. Yeah. Because he's, he's amazing. He's really great. He's incredible. He's yeah. really, really good. And he's, he's uh, you couldn't have a better person than they're helping you. With no, not at all. I mean, we've worked together for, for many years now. and uh, He's a good guy. He's, he's really a solid guy. He can make absolutely anything which is unbelievable, whether it's a sculpture, a painting, uh, something digital. He, he's infinitely skilled at that kind of thing. And uh, I, really, I really trust him. You know, when I make things, uh, we'll often stand there and, and just get a together, feel for yeah, it yeah. together. And, and uh, you know. His- uh, when you and I, when, you, when I come in and do studio visits and Jakob is there, it's us three standing around looking at peace talking about it. Yeah. It's yeah. great. It is. It's amazing. Yeah. I also know Jakob secretly like listens to studio visit conversations. And then when I walk out, he's probably like that dick. (laughs) (laughs) Fly on the wall and all that. Yeah, exactly. No, I always imagine he's really like kind of tired of hearing my, my same old kind of talking points. He's like, John, that's really getting old. Well, it it kind of like you do enough visits and it just becomes a kind of, I've never got to this point with, with any sort of verbal delivery, but, but yeah, I, I have like, my my way of taking people through the work and it's pretty automatic to the point where it frees me up because i can i can kind of be spontaneous you know exactly what you're gonna say. i know exactly what i'm going to say and if if it goes off the rails i know i can always sort of go back to the kind well, of you have the fixed you know how it's going to go off the rails yeah you do it and i do enough studio visits that like you know if somebody brings up this certain point you can bring it right back on track and pull it right yeah. back around to where you need to be mm-hmm. because you've done it so many times but that only comes from like doing it all the time yeah Okay, so wait, moving from piece to piece and like... Oh, yeah. So I, I think it is a kind of thing that's worked out socially. I, I, I really feel that way. I, like, I have a kind of idea about where I want to go and I'll start making works in that direction and then I, you know, show them in studio visits and see kind of what the conversation, how it emerges, if, if this is going where I intend it to go. If it has grip. Yeah, because... You know, it, it's a, it's a very like a tenet of psychoanalysis that you you can't have desire separate from other people. Like your desire is formed around other people's desire. Really? 
yeah like like how could you and and that's why my entire show in new york was about this idea this idea of relationality about some kind of imaginary entity between you and another person this this idea of you and the other and how that kind of drives you it's like what we were talking about before with friends and being both artists and at different points in your career or having different things even happening to you and how you kind of work through that uh in a relationship with somebody there's like it's a really complicated but it can be a very fruitful kind of process and that's why you keep a studio open yeah, and that's why i keep it open yeah all right back to texas oh yeah things are bigger there yeah a lot bigger do you feel um pressure because of the size or not i i do feel a little pressure but i also have this again it's a i suppose it's a fantasy i want to make these large works and I, because you can because i can the because, space allows it basically. because they would work in this space yeah and, because they'd work and in the space. Could, not because it's just an opportunity yeah and i could see what that would feel like to make these things that are embodied that I actually can use my entire body in the making of them. Yeah. You know, uh, that, that's really exciting to me. And having studied architecture, I think dealing with a kind of a, a large piece that is, you can't really see the edges of. I, I feel like the marks or the mark making that you're using in the current show yeah. can translate into this new show in a way that is mm. just very natural. Yeah. And sort of gesture, it's like getting your body into it and feeling like how you can actually produce pieces in the scale that like uh, adjusts and sort of fits for, for that, that space. Exactly. And that's, and that's why I, uh, you know, painting is so like, uh, I, for me at least, I have such a hard time mentioning it even like. But you want to be a painter so bad. So desperate sometimes. <laughs> 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 it's so repressed. It's, it's crazy. Like I, I was telling Candace the other day. I it's was, not that repressed. Well, not anymore, but <laughs> years, years of repression, it's, it's slowly emerging. And I was telling Candace the other day, I was like, you know, I want to talk about Dallas and my, my thoughts about what I want to do there. And I was like, and, and, and I was telling her about the photos and this whole plan. And then I was like, and I want to make paintings. And I like laughed because it was like so much nervous, kind of nervous emotion. Yeah. I was like, why did I, I just said that. And it's ridiculous. It's stupid that that would be such a big deal. But, but for me, it, it kind of is. And you know, the one thing I think about is like, I could scale up my photographs, but, and this is a weird. That's easy. It's, it's easy. And also like, then you, you have to frame these stupid things. Oh shit. They look terrible. Yeah. They look the, horrid. As the frame scales up with the size of the photo, suddenly you're left with this like, like, <laughs> like we, like growing up, I, I had a waterbed growing up and, oh my God. It, and it, had this, <laughs> it had this really heavy dark frame. That's really thick. We are the epitome of white trash. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but but whenever i see a large photograph and i see the frame i think of you that, think waterbed i think of that fucking waterbed and how i never want to make a photo that has a frame that gets so bulky it's like the proportions of a waterbed frame it's a very personal strange kind of aversion to large photos but but it's real and i you know paintings scale really well and like wolfgang tillman's abstract pieces at just the inkjet prints packed up to the wall that's that's such a brilliant move as a way to make a large piece that works in in space. What do you think the Urge Fisher uh, silk screens with that look like paintings? The ones on the objects, like the four sided or no, six -sided? no, they're the the paintings, the giant wall scale. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that uh, at Gavin Brown. At Gavin Brown, exactly. What do you think of those? 
Yeah, I mean, that, those certainly interest me. And I, you know, I thought, I of course, thought, thought of Saul Witt a lot, too, and the idea of wall drawing and how that could, those gestures could be directly on the wall. And then You're saying like the translated directly, not like the Earth Fishers, because those are like framed, but yeah. like Saul Witt directly. But I, but I do feel like I am, I really like contained objects. And, yeah. And so. It's because you're so fucking anal. I know. I am. It's true. <laughs> I want to be able to just. <laughs> you're like, I need to put a them. box around it. It needs to have a I, box. It has to be framed. I've got to be able to pick that up and move it somewhere. Well, and that's, and that's where like painting scales so well. You can make a large painting and you don't have to deal it's with this, totally this true. crappy frame. And it's so much easier to kind of scale up in a way. And, and actually like the few larger paintings I've made there. And you, you told me this from the beginning, you were like, those will be easier to paint than the small ones. And you're, you were absolutely right. And not in a, not in a, uh, in a way that's good for you as an artist, not in a way yeah. that like makes it simple. No, completely. Like it, it's easier for you to figure out your rhythm of like your strokes and like your, your mark mm-hmm. on a larger painting to begin with, especially when you're trying to figure out where you're at in the piece. Yeah. If you work in sort of minute detail, you can get lost in in these little moments in there that are just not helpful. Yeah, yeah no, uh, those few larger ones I made, you were exactly right in that I felt less precious about that. I still think you could go bigger on some of that stuff just to even play yeah. around. Yeah, well, like, and, and that's and that's to get back to your question about Texas, that's kind of the direction I'm thinking is like, how do the painted marks, the gestures, and the photographs that cut across the kind of photographic space, yeah. how do those translate into a painting on their own that would be shown with with the photographs as well, but how would, how would they hold space as these larger kind of objects? And that may take the form of oil on canvas. Wow. I think maybe, uh, unless you have anything else to discuss, we might leave it there. Sure. It's exciting. And then, uh, until the next time we talk, because you'll be back on. Thanks man. This has been great. It's been really good. And congratulations with putting this together. This is, uh, for all the listeners, a very professional setup. <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. This is like proper, right? It's beautiful. I I have to say, like, you kept telling me about this, and you 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 gave me like you were texting me about this this podcast. I decided and, like a week and a half before I was going to do it that I was going to do it and bought all the things. Yeah, and you were you were texting me all these things, and I was like, man, Jason is like kind of serious about this, but I I don't know, I don't know what this is all about, and. I'm not sure if this will work. And then like within a day I came over, you had this great title after kind of sending me some sort of titles where I was like, Oh man, you always do that. You never respond to me. I don't fucking know. How do I, how do I, how do I I tell him it's, how do I tell him nicely? That title is hard. (laughs) Not the right one. But then, but then you just like, you figured it all out and you had built this table and and I came in here like a week ago and I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to do this fucking podcast. Like this It got is, better. You were a little like hesitant to begin with. I was. I, I'll readily admit that. Yeah. But when I saw the material set up here, it's it's beautiful, man. Congratulations. Yeah. It's great. Okay. <laughs> Bye.